The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Good morning, church. Am I good? All right. This is the day that the Lord has made. Thank you. Your worship is beautiful. It's an offering uh, not only to God, but I know it was an offering and a blessing to my life. Um, just to stand up here in front and hear you talk about the day that the Lord has made. We give God thanks for the way that he has created the world and the blessings that we have and the way he saves us and all the wonderful work he does. And so we can say this is the day the Lord had made and we can rejoice and be glad. Thank you for blessing uh, the Lord with that and thank you for blessing one another. Hey, I want to welcome you if you're joining in person, if you're a member, if you're a visitor, you're welcome. If you're joining us online, welcome. We've been in a sermon series, The Gospel According to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Brett has begun us off fantastic talking about the gospel according to Matthew, and then last week the gospel according to Mark. And today we're going to talk about the gospel according to Luke. But before we get into that, let's begin with prayer. Will you pray with me? God, as always, we give you thanks for your word. And I confess that at times your word is a great mystery to us. Not because of what it says all the time. But because we know and down deep we believe that your word is life. That your word is transformative. That your word forms us in ways that we might not even recognize. We thank you for your word. For your good word to us as Jesus. And all the grace and love and compassion that he has. Thank you for your word to us. God, today we pray as always for ears to hear for hearts to follow, for lives and bodies that will obey. And God, I ask for the gift of proclamation today. It's in the name of your word to us, Jesus, we pray, amen. In Luke's gospel, Jesus tells this story about a son. And the son comes to a father, his father, and says, I want you to give me all of my inheritance. Which is basically to say, Father, the stuff you give me when you, before, when you die, I want you to give that to me now. And so the Father just graciously gives him half, his, his part of the inheritance. And the son runs off, he says, to a foreign land. And this, what the son does is he begins to live wild living. He lives wildly. And he parties it up, and pretty soon all of that inheritance is spent, and he has nothing. And it just so happens about the same time that he ends up spending all his inheritance and there's nothing left, a famine hits the land. So not only does he not have food, not only does he not have any money because he's wasted it all and spent it all away, now he's hungry. So he goes and gets a job feeding pigs. And he's so hungry that he looks at what he's feeding the pigs and says, I want that food. If I just had some of that food. 
So one day, he's slopping around with all the pigs, feeding them, looking at their food, going, how has it come to this? How has it come that I'm sitting here feeding pigs, and all I want is what the pigs are eating? And so it says he comes to his senses, and he thinks, what am I doing here? In my father's house, there's hired people that eat better than me, that are treat, treated better than this. So he said, I'll go back to my father, I'll apologize, and maybe I'll get, and he's got plenty of food. So it says that he went back to his father. And it says the father, when he was a long way off, he saw him. And he had compassion on him. And he ran to him. And the son said, Father, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against the family. Just make me one of your hired servants. And he said, no, bring the ring. Bring the robe. Kill the fat calf. We're going to have a party. But then it says this, beginning in verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. God forbid, God was dancing. <laughs> you ever notice that? Mm-hmm. Now all of you are going, what? I didn't know that was in Scripture. He heard music and dancing, so he called one of his servants and asked him, What's going on? Your brother has come, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has, he has him back safe and sound. So the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and, you ne and I've never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, came home, you killed the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad. Because your brother, this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost, and now he's found. This is a very famous story that you all know well. And by the way, this story is only told in the Gospel of Luke. One of the things that we get out of this story that's immediate is that this story is about a prodigal son who we can identify with. It's about a son that goes wayward but is received back by the father and that we celebrated because of that. But within this story, I want you to get what Luke is trying to do because I think captured within this story is the gospel according to Luke. And that's this, that within the gospel of Luke, Jesus is Savior of all. In other words, Luke's gospel is universal. Jesus is Savior of all, and Jesus 
is Lord of all. That is good news according to Luke. Because it says, while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and was filled with compassion. Parenting's hard. Lisa's right. And she's also right about this. This is what God our Father does. Whether you're the older brother or whether you're the younger brother, Jesus is Lord of all. It doesn't matter how far away you've been. Jesus saves. It doesn't matter who you are. Jesus saves. It doesn't matter what age you've lived in, what country you live in, what you look like. It does not matter. Jesus saves. At the very heart of God's saving work in the world is this. God is compassionate. While he was still a long ways off, he saw him and he had compassion. At the very heart of God's reign and rule in the world is this. His graciousness. His kindness. His abiding and deep love. When the son comes running back and says, Father, I've sinned against you. He's like, get the ring, get the robe, kill the fatted calf, let's party. And the prodigal son represents all those people that you think don't get represented. It's universal. Mother Teresa tells this story. You know, Mother Teresa served in Calcutta, India, and she said one day this Hindu woman, mother, came to her and says, my children have not eaten in, in days, almost a week. They're starving to death. And she said, I looked upon her children, and I said, it was very dramatic and so what I did was I went and found some food and I found some rice for her and I gave her the rice. And immediately she divided it equally into half and then went off. And then later that day, says she came back to Mother Teresa and she's like, well, where did, you, where did you go? Where did you go? I saw you divided that rice in two. And this Hindu mother said, yeah, I divided it in two because my neighbor who's a Muslim, her kids haven't eaten in a week either. And so I wanted to share that with her. And Mother Teresa said, that is compassion. That is the kind of compassion that God shows you and I. You couldn't maybe get further apart than a Hindu and a Muslim. But it didn't matter. She looked and she saw that mother and those kids, and because she was a mother and had kids, she says, I, I got a compassion. 
God is so gracious that he gives the younger son his half in the portion. He's compassionate right from the beginning. The son has basically said, Father, I wish you were dead. Because that's the only time you get the inheritance. And God is so compassionate and gracious that he hands over half the rice to him. But here's what compassion looks like. Is that even though he squandered it all, while he was still a long way off, God had compassion. Believe it or not, this story, believe it or not, is not primarily about that prodigal son. Not for Luke. It's significant. It's important. But I'm not sure what Luke's doing that is primarily about that son. Because what we read is that after they start throwing a party, there's this kind of change. Meanwhile, the older brother was standing out in the field, and he came back, and he was disturbed that God was dancing. That's not why he was disturbed, but that's why some of you are disturbed this morning. <laughs> Parenting is hard. Amen. That God dances, that's blind-blowing. Amen. For some of you, not so much, right? For others, you're like, I don't know if I can stay here any longer. I don't know if I can do it. The story is not primarily about the prodigal son. The story is primarily about the response of the older brother. The elder brother's upset. In fact, he's angry and he refuses to go inside. And he's angry because of this. He says, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and I've never disobeyed one of your commands. Not once. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, sorry, I don't mean to point, when this son of yours, <laughs> point all the sons over here, when this son of yours who squandered all your property with prostitutes and wild living, when he comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because the brother of yours that was dead, he is alive again. He was lost and now that he's found. And so this story of the prodigal son is this, this is what he's doing. The prodigal son are the Gentiles. The younger son is the Gentiles. The older son, the one that was in the field that came back and had a problem with God celebrating and dancing and He's the Jewish people. And so here's the problem. Here's one of the problems that's faced in this text. Is that when Luke says Jesus is Lord of all, that is an incredibly radical statement in the first century. 
I can't tell you how radical that statement is. You and I, we take this for granted and we say this, but this is radical. Let me give you an example, right? Because here's how this world works. The Jews have their God, we believe is the one and only God, right? But the Greeks have their gods. And the Romans have their gods. And the Egyptians have their gods. And the Assyrians have their gods. And the Babylonians have their gods. And their gods are ethnic. And their gods are regional. This is how the world works. So to say that Jesus is Lord of all is like this incredibly radical, radical statement. I mean, by comparison, I would have to say something so heretical and offensive to each one of you that you would be shocked and angered, even to the point of maybe getting up and walking out of church. So there are these people called the Judaizers. You've heard of this. In fact, Monty talked about it in the adult class that was in here. So one of the things in the early church that they dealt with, with the Judaizers, was this, is that they were, they were Jewish Christians, but they believed that in order to be Christian, you had to follow the Mosaic law, and that Gentiles, converts, must be circumcised before they could be Christian. Paul spills an enormous amount of ink in our New Testament dealing with this issue. The book of Galatians, the book of Romans... He's kind of writing to Jewish people, Jewish Christians, and saying, time out. Time out. But here's what they're concerned with. For Jewish people, they're concerned with law, punishment, and kind of a legal system of justice. Right? What do you have to do? And the younger, the older brother is looking at the younger son, the prodigal son, and saying, he's guilty. Can you hear it? He's guilty. Of course they can hear it. You adults aren't listening, but the kids are listening. That's who I'm preaching for, right? He's guilty. And you would say he's guilty. But for the Gentiles, when they hear this, I mean, he looks at his situation, he's starving. His concern is about survival. Right? The prodigal son. Two, he finds himself in this low position. The, the, the servants at my father's house eat better than this. So he feels shame. And yes, he comes back and said, I've sinned against you. But it's really not about, for him, his own guilt. It's about the shame that he feels and about the position. He's like, hey, just make me one of your hired hands. It's better than what I had before. It's a more esteemed position than what I had before. And so for Jewish Christians, and the way Paul writes that are concerned with guilt and condemnation, he talks about the cross, the cross of Christ. But for Gentile Christians, he talks about who are concerned with fate and death. They have a different concern. You can go back and read in the New Testament, he talks about the resurrection. It addresses that concern. 
Now for us today, I want to make a few observations about this. About how Luke may relate to us today. Because when we say, when Luke says, here's the gospel, Jesus is Lord of all. When Luke says that, that's not very radical for us today. I mean, I could stand up here and you would nod your heads. And you're like, yeah, Jesus is Lord of all. And I think we actually take that for granted. And this is what I mean. We actually believe this. If you look at our, 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 our mission statement here, that we're a church being transformed in the image of Christ so that anyone can find their way to God. Embedded in that is this idea that Jesus saves all. He can save anyone. That's what that means. He's Lord of all. Like, you don't have to be an American for Jesus to save you. You don't have to be a Jew for Jesus to save you. You don't have to be a guy for Jesus to save you. You don't have to be circumcised for Jesus. I mean, there's all these things, right, that we say that we believe it doesn't matter. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. That's Jesus is Lord of all. We sing that. We confess it. That's not a hard statement for us to gather our minds around. And another way that I think we take it for granted, this is what I appreciate about this church, is that we don't think that this idea that Jesus is Lord of all, or to be Christian, is limited to the name on the church building. Amen. That's what I love about this church. Is that we're Christians only, but we're not the only Christians. Amen. This is what I love about this church. That we are a church of Christ. We are a church of Christ. I love the heritage. I love being in that heritage. But we'll do stuff with Baptists. Non-denominational churches. Body and soul. Am I right? We're Christians only, but we're not the only Christians. I love that. And that's been a problem in our past, right? But here's where I think it might come in and affect us. We believe that a message of the gospel is that Jesus died for your sins so that you can spend eternity with him. That is 100% true. We proclaim it. We believe it. We believe that deeply, that message, that Jesus died for your sins so that you can spend eternity with him. But I want you to hear something. That is a message of the gospel. But if that is the only message of the gospel, our gospel is way too small. When I lived in Uganda, the gospel of Jesus dying for your sins was preached to Ugandans. Not just by me, but by missionaries that had gone before me, long before me. And Ugandans and people in sub-Saharan Africa took that and they embraced it. Because I think it shows you the heart. For me, it showed me the heart of an African. And that they're receptive to the gospel. But here's what I experienced as I was preaching 
a message of the gospel being that Jesus died for your sins, I would always get a hand raised after that. They would nod their head and say yes, but I always get a hand raised about that. I was like, but what do we do about poverty? And for a long time, I just thought, that's not a spiritual thing. Raise their hand. But what do we do about curses? Ooh, that is a spiritual thing. What do we do about HIV AIDS? What do we do about death? And while for a long time I thought that I was preaching the message they needed to hear and they were focusing on other things, one of my good friends who is a minister and we talked about this one day, he said, you know what, for Africans, this is not totally true. This is a very general statement. For Africans, church is good for the daytime. And the witch doctor is good for the nighttime. And what he meant by that is that church addresses certain things about African life. But it doesn't address maybe the most important things. And in the end, the reality was, is that while guilt is a big deal, and that Jesus dying for your sin, that is a message of the gospel that's 100% true. They weren't asking those questions around guilt and legality and condemnation. Their concerns were more, how do I survive in a world where there's curses and powers and death, HIV, AIDS, things that are out of my control. How do I survive? And what I learned is the gospel addresses those things. In North America, we preach often, in general, a gospel that addresses guilt. And it does. It addresses guilt. But I've often asked my students. I teach a course in evangelism and discipleship. And I teach other courses. And I've done this for a long time. I'll ask students. I go, what are, what are the main concerns of your generation? And I kind of lead the way. Because like, what do you mean? It was like, well, do, do most of your friends feel guilty? And if they say, yes, they do. And I say, do they go to church? And they're like, yes. I go, yeah, church people feel guilty. Generally, who feels guilty is church people. But about, what about your friends that are not church people? He goes, nope, they don't feel guilt. And I say, I'm, I'm not saying they're not guilty. Or maybe they should feel guilt, but that's not, that's not their experience of the world, is it? I'm like, no. I say, well, what is their experience of the world? What's their concern? And almost every time without leading the way, they say, meaning and purpose. Their existential, like deep, deep burden in life is meaning and purpose. And I look and I said, do you think Jesus has anything to say about meaning and purpose in life? Is there any good news for that concern? In fact, there's two. I've done this, this inventory where it kind of assesses students as they go, th go through it. And the number one uh, guilt and condemnation is one of those worlds that they can be associated with, but most students don't live in that world. You know the number one world that, they, that they're, they're tested on, that they, uh, they, they, they test in the affirmative for, is a world that is concerned with meaninglessness and despair. 
So here's what it needs to be lost. You're lost in identity, you're lost in purpose, and you're saved in that Christ helps you discover who you are, grow into that, and find fulfillment. You can make the case, this is actually Paul. Remember Paul thought his purpose in life was to go after these Christians? And then Jesus appears on the road and Paul's whole purpose changes. That's all he really ever talks about for himself. He goes, I used to do this. And now my whole life is organized around this mission and purpose of God. His life was given radically changed. And praise God that Paul, he received the good news that your life can be fulfilled and you have a different purpose. Because you and I might not be here without Paul, the missionary to the Gentiles. Amen? You know the second one that comes in? And this has been very recent. I think there is a reason for this. The second one is a world called suffering and endurance. That more and more students, I find, not because they identify with it directly, because once they take this little inventory, they discover, oh, I kind of resonate with this world. And suffering and endurance says something like this. Life is heavy. Life is unfair. In fact, I often feel like I'm a victim in this world. And it's not surprising that that's been coming up because there are students that live through uh, COVID. All of a sudden, their world, they don't have control of their world anymore. All they thought was going to be. So life has this heaviness to it. They feel a little victimized. And it's not so it's not so crazy, this idea that we've been talking about the ways that in society and more and more church, more and more church people. In fact, we just had a con- we just had a little conference on this. It was very well attended. That more and more church people are, are thinking about trauma and how it affects people. And in the world of suffering and endurance, Jesus suffers with us. You are not alone, and you move from victim to survivor because Jesus survives, and you survive with him. Maybe we're like that older brother. That we want everyone to have the same concerns we do. But I want to tell you, the gospel is big enough to cover the concerns that your neighbors have. If you'll just listen and go into the party. God's compassion. It reaches down to our sin and our guilt, and he offers us incredible forgiveness. But God's compassion also extends to humanity's deepest and the vast concerns of life. Concerns about meaning. Concerns about suffering. Concerns about harmony and unity. Concerns about peace. Concerns about justice in the midst of oppression. Jesus is Lord of all our concerns.